and welcome. Thank you all for joining. Wrapping up the end of May here in 2021, I have a special guest joining me this week, Dr. Regina Gavillo. First of all, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your position. You're with <laughs> Farmers Business Network, FDN. So tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your current role. Sure, sure. Well, hi, everyone. My name is Regina. I'm from Alabama, and I'm actually coming to you from Alabama right now and inside my car. My background, David and I know each other from grad school. We shared the same hallways for a couple of years at Purdue. And then uh, after that, I moved on to Texas A&M while he stayed in Indiana. And uh, then I went to work for, at the time it was called Informa. Now it's IHS Market. Worked for Informa for a few years. And then a couple of years ago, received an offer from FBN to join their team and uh, was really interested in what FBN was doing for farmers, which speaks to my heart because I grew up on a farm. My dad and brother are full-time farmers. Joined their team a couple of years ago and have been uh, really enjoying the ride. You sometimes, or you oftentimes, dive even deeper than most of us to really understand what's going on in the markets. And so you spend a lot of time with wheat and canola, correct? Yes, I do. So uh, wheat was my specialty when I was at Informa, and uh, I continued that when I came on board to FBN. And then when we expanded into the Canadian market, because I already was familiar with Canadian wheat and how that worked, it just made logical sense for me to learn more about other Canadian crops, including canola. So I do spend a lot of my time on those, but hey, I'm also learning about lentils and peas and all kinds of fun stuff and naturally can, can talk about corn and beans as well. We talked before we hit the record button here. So there's a lot of stuff that we can cover. The first one I want to talk about, of course, this is the Ag Uncertainties podcast. So the goal here is to help <laughs> people think about what's on the horizon as it comes to uncertainty. Let's talk a little bit about wheat. So there's a few million acres of more wheat in the U.S., at least on the winter wheat side, than there was a year ago. So what are you watching on the wheat side? Well, I'll say a few million more acres than, than we've seen in probably a few years. Let's separate winter wheat from spring wheat, because I think this year there are going to be very different dynamics and they'll revert back to what we would consider normal spreads and that Minneapolis trades at a premium to the winter wheats. But I really am concerned about the U.S. hitting an export program that's above 850 million bushels, maybe. I think even on the low end, it could be 800 million. That may not seem like a lot, but you're talking a, a difference of 100 to 200 million bushels that just don't get used, right, that the end up in ending stocks, then we're back to the billion bushel, approaching that billion bushel carry out or 50% stocks to use or a half a year's, you know, use. And that's a big concern because wheat finally broke out of this low price environment that we've been seeing. But I don't want to say the ball game's over for wheat for the U.S. because we're still a top third exporter, right? We're still big. We're behind the EU and Russia. But it's going to be really hard to maintain our export share when Russia is just, wow, they're really upping the ante with their, with their wheat production. And this year, they're, they're going to be gunning for, for everybody on high rollover stocks and probably a bigger crop. It's going to be hard. So keep an eye on exports, what's going on. It's interesting, right? Because what you're sharing is that we need a big export story to hit the expectations that we already have in those. Yeah, I think so. And like USDA was pretty cautious with that first export projection, you know, for the 21 year. But my concern is that production maybe is boosted higher for the world and U.S. exports are cut back some. Even with a bad crop in the EU last year, restrictions on Russia's exports and pretty strong demand for wheat, the U.S. wasn't able to push past the billion bushel export point for this crop year. So that should tell you something right there, right? 
now it takes production disasters in two countries to maybe bring the U.S. on board for exports. So I'm just not very optimistic. Hate to be a pessimist out there, but let's look at let's look at the reality here. So let's switch gears a little bit. I think the one of the questions that we're following closely is this idea of acreage. The next big acreage estimate comes out of the USDA at the end of June. Help us think a little bit about what listeners should be thinking about. So you don't have to share your specific forecasts or estimates. What are some of the issues and conditions that you're thinking about as you're framing up your expectations? So first, I'm going to tell you just some personal opinions, nothing that that are reflective of, you know, this would just be what I would call sitting with a farmer and having coffee. What, What are we talking about? And when you think about research and, and analytics, and I like to kind of push the bar and say, and, and kind of be the devil's advocate, why can't that happen? And I know a lot of people are seeing some numbers out there that maybe raise eyebrows for corn when they're above 95 million acres or 96 million acres. And my argument to that would be, why can't it be 100? Why can't it be 105? And you'll get the story of, well, that's never happened before, or the bean prices are so good, we're not going to see that. Well, you know what? China also hasn't bought this amount of corn from us before. There are things that don't happen that are happening now. We've never had a global wide lockdown before, and that has happened. And so I tend to kind of push the bar on that thinking. Now, from an FBN perspective, some of the research that we're doing does suggest that it would be really pushing the bar to get to 96 million acres of corn. We're going to be doing a conducting another survey later in June ahead of USDA's June acreage report, where we're asking producers what they planted last year, what they planted this year, and that absolute value change or that difference year over year. But I guess from like a, a research perspective and what I was taught in grad school and, and how to think outside the box, I would always want to push the limits and say, you know, we could get a hundred million acres of corn. Now all the research we're doing, you know, and then the black box, what we're looking at suggests that that's not feasible, but could it happen? Sure. It could happen. Any, anything could happen. That's probably way outside the normal reality of thinking, but in my opinion, anything could happen, right? We, we could plant no soybeans and all corn. We don't know. Logic would argue against that, of course, but it could happen. Realistically, though, based on survey data and what producers are telling us and what history would suggest is that getting to 96 million acres or higher is probably going to be pretty hard. What I, I like about what you said is it's, a, I guess, one of those ideas that Brent and I talk a little bit about, but think about a lot is what do we think acreage could be? What's the most reasonable estimate? And then put a a range on that. So what is the highest number that you seems possible? Maybe what's the lowest number that might seem possible? And I think one of the takeaways from all these estimates, and especially estimates that are diverse or they conflict a little bit, is it's helpful for us to realize, okay, my bounds of what my I was expecting might be too tight. And in fact, like there's a lot of research out there that if you ask people 10 questions, you're going to quickly find that as humans, we sometimes have a lot more confidence than what's really out there. So when I look at some of these estimates that are around 96 million acres, these are really smart people who have some really valuable data. And they are. And that is their best estimate. And so they have an upper range of possibility and a lower range of possibilities and what they're thinking about. And so maybe we need to have a little less certainty in our expectations and start building into this reality of, because I think sometimes we get hyper-focused on a half million acres or a million acres. It's like, hey, there's air out there. We got to balance certainty with in confidence with the noise and the static that's going on. The intellectual argument 
is, and I don't mean, I mean, like sitting down and like actually discussing all the different ways that we can get to these numbers. I mean, they're, you're, you're trying to capture behavior and survey data is a great way to do that because you're asking that person to tell us their behavior. Tell me what you did. There are other approaches like looking at price relationships and trying to forecast behavior rather than asking directly off of a survey. And a lot of times the boundaries, at least in some of the research work that I've done, that people are using my familiarity with how this process works across agencies is, you know, they, they are sticking to some historical norms or we're saying that the pie is this big, where is the acreage fitting within this pie? As uh, the devil's advocate, I would say, yeah, the pie is this big, but why are we limiting the historical bounds, right, to corn? Like, why do you think, David, that corn could could be no bigger than nine? Why was that the top end? It, it could be, we could plant every single acre we have of arable land, the corn. It could happen. It won't. But we can't throw that out. And so uh, this year is an unusual year. Every year has has things that are different in it than other years. You know, for instance, the wind event that happened in Iowa, that was an unusual event. I mean, had that ever happened before? I don't know that it take out that much production. So every year is different. And again, the research that we're doing at FBN suggests that it's hard to get to a, a much big, bigger swing than what USDA published in March. But as someone just sitting down and thinking about this intellectually, what would stop us from getting to 200 million acres of corn? I mean, it won't happen, of course. But, um, but I think you raise a good point because we sometimes simplify reality with some boundaries. But yeah. we got to recognize those boundaries are always moving a little bit. While 200 million acres of corn isn't unlikely, why do we draw the boundary at 96 million acres, 97 million acres, as firmly as we would at 200 or 100? Uh, I think that's a very interesting thought exercise to sort of challenge our thinking about. Because corn and soybean acreage combined, that's the number that I like to follow a lot. Sure. Going back to your pie analogy, that's been on an upward trajectory for 20 or 30 years, right? Like that's just been a growing trend. And so that's another example of the boundary where the boundary is sort of always moving. So we have to think about that. I mean, hypothetically, if we push the boundary, the running joke used to be, well, how many thousands of millions of acres of soybeans is Montana going to plant? Montana doesn't really plant soybeans. So that's kind of like the running joke. But if you were to push the boundary, we really could get to an acreage number that we don't believe. Who would have believed 10 years ago that we're going to plant more than 90 million acres of soybeans? Who would have thought China would import 100 million tons of soybeans 10 years ago? I mean, you know, these things are are what's happening. <laughs> or we'd be talking about a big wheat acreage number around 45 million. This has been in decades of decline. Now we're like, oh, wow, this is this is up. <laughs> I right. can't believe wheat acres are up. That's so right. and I want to underscore, like, I'm not questioning anybody's research at all. Lots of people thought five years ago, we would continue on this downtrend. But if we're going to think outside the box, what could happen that we're not thinking about? And it could be that we get 100 million acres of corn. But when you're looking at the numbers and uh, what we're looking at too, we're going to be pushing the bar to get to, to 96. So FBN is going to have their estimate and you talked a little bit about that and that'll be available before the June acreage report. We're going to do another acreage survey. I think it starts on the 7th. That's what we're thinking right now. Last for a couple of weeks and get issued ahead of uh, USDA's June acreage report. And what we're going to ask is what we asked in the March one. What did you plant this year? What did you plant last year of said commodities? We'll put that into, um, you know, do some research on, on those numbers and see what we come up with behavior-wise and what we're seeing, you know, any shifts that we're seeing for getting more corn numbers today than we did a few months ago. I want to ask you a little a bit of a pointed question here. You said that your survey is going to compare acreage change, right? So it's absolute number of acres increase or decrease. And that's, sure. you mentioned earlier and offline, there's another way that you can measure that. 
Do you want to, um, sure. not, not a method that you do, but you're familiar with from other agencies? For any farmer that gets a USDA report or survey, you know what they're asking because you see it. And then tons of agencies are, are issuing survey reports. But typically what you see is either, what did you plant this year? What did you plant last year? Or what percentage increase did you do or decrease for these commodities? And each survey method has pros and cons. Basically, what you're looking for is a trend. Are we seeing higher or lower acres of, of certain commodities? And when you're asking for, you know, absolute values or, or these changes that we're seeing, sometimes you can get, you know, bias brought in. If you've got a really big farm that does a really big shift, that could be a concern. But on the flip side, when you're looking at just percent changes, if you've got a small grower who's growing, you know, 50 acres and that grower just wakes up one day and says, you know, this year, instead of corn, I'm going to plant beans and you get you know, basically an unmeasurable shift of percent change, you know, how, how do you, how do you manage that? And how do you know, like if you get 150% acreage change, like you, you don't know what happened there, if it went from zero or, you know, one to 50 or 50 to one, or if it went from, you know, 10,000 to 50,000, we don't know. And so, you know, there, there are different ways to, to capture acreage changes and, and some people, some, some farms, they may not do survey data. They're going to stick to price relationships because they do provide really great insight. But we know USDA is going to survey not only paper, but aerial as well, right? They're, they're going to look at the satellite imagery too. Well, this has been super insightful. I learned a lot about how this is going to come together. So I appreciate that. As we got a couple different questions for you to wrap this up. As an ag economist, what are some things that you think aren't being discussed enough here in 2021? So maybe some of the understated issues. I think an understated issue is that I still view the U.S. basically as a residual supplier. Brazil and Russia are not going anywhere. It's going to be really hard to maintain export shares, which we know we've been losing export share across the board. And so that's always a big concern. Like, what is the face of U.S. agriculture in 20 years? As long as we have the comparative advantage, which we, I think we still have in corn. That's a plus. And, and we're, of course, we're always going to need domestic use. But you think about the competition that we are facing now, where they were 10 to 15 years ago, the growth they've made, by they, I mean Brazil and Russia, the growth they've seen in the past 10 years, like what does that look like in 10 years from now? That's always a, a concern as far as where the U.S. bonds up in that mix. Of course, one of the challenges are those are where acreage are coming into production, right? So um, that's what South America is adding acres. Russia and the former Soviet Union are adding production acres. So it's it's sort of one of those trends where we have to be competitive, but also as the world continues to use more ag products, it's hard for us to keep up because we don't have a lot of untapped resources. So we added a lot of acres in the 70s, and that was sort of the U.S.'s last expansion, so to speak. That's a good piece. So one last question here. What else are you thinking about a little bit? What's really interesting to me and what I think about a lot is if you think about commodity markets, this run up that we've had in corn prices and bean prices and wheat prices, it it was months in the making. We were in a low price environment for a couple of years and and then in a few months, we, we kind of got up to this point. And then all of a sudden, just boom, like we've, we've lost a lot of that, that value because it takes a while to run up. And then a lot of times it takes a much shorter time period to, to retrace those gains. 
and I, I wonder if, if that's going to be the case for what we're seeing here with, with COVID and that all of a sudden we were running up, you know, stock markets and, and behavior patterns and, and eating out and food away from home and et cetera, all these things that were happening, working away from home. And then all of a sudden we have this major change that was forced uh, in a lot of cases. Some of it was choice, some of it was forced or unenforced. Is it going to be the same ladder where it takes a really long time to get back to where we were, or are we going to stay here? And is this is the new norm? And what does that mean for housing? Right, we've seen that take off incredibly during this lockdown. What does it mean for big cities? What does it mean for government infrastructure in these big cities that rely on on tax dollars? What does it mean for tourism? What does it look like in five years from now? Or is it going to be like it was in 2020? Or are we going to be in a new world still? It's hard to change human behavior, right? The last year has been a, bu- a big exercise of changing human behavior. And so I think it's a very good thing to think about is how does human behavior adjust or revert or not revert moving <laughs> from here? That's right. So. We know we can change it. How do we change it? <laughs> and how, how can that be undone? You know, I don't know if it can be undone. It's going to have to be undone gradually, just like the stair step when you're working towards higher prices. Um, you know, I think it'll be hard to, to just completely undo it, but we'll see. I heard a lot of people saying, you know, oh, I've worked from home for a year. I've learned that I don't have to be in the office at all. And other people say, I've been working from home for a year. I don't want to ever do it anymore, (laughs) right? So it's like, we had this great experiment of like, everyone's going to, or a lot of the economy is going to work from home. And we're going to use Zoom to try to do as much work as possible. Now we'll see how human behavior reverts once we come back. The sharing economy now there's a bit of concern about the sharing economy because of, you know, germs, right? Spreading the virus. And by sharing, I mean, whether you're renting places or cars or whatever, but now it's like, well, are firms going to have to share office spaces? Like, you know, the, the WeWork, that type of thing, because is it really in a firm's best interest to, to have the entire office building or all that office space that it used to have? We'll see where that ends up, but you know, it makes, it makes life interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course, listeners can find more of your writings and your thoughts through the FBN's outlets and their newsletters. So I encourage people to look at that. I encourage all of our listeners to join us back next week. And in the meantime, stay curious. (music) 